Please bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, you have created all things and you have revealed yourself and you have set up our relationship to you so that we cannot know you unless you reveal yourself to us. There's no way that we can think our way to you. We can suspect that you are there and learn some things about your character from looking at creation, looking at your handiwork, But we cannot understand even this world, much less you, unless you reveal yourself to us. And even as we read scripture, it will remain locked to us if we don't understand it through the key of knowledge, Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you give us that key now? Would you give us fellowship with you? Would you reveal yourself to us? through your word, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law? Would you illuminate the pages of your word? Would you shed light into our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? May we see it even from Ecclesiastes this morning. Encourage us, instruct us, correct us, spur us on to love and good deeds. May we understand. May we realize afresh this morning by feeding on your word that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to hear preached. So I give you credit for being here. <laughs> I give you credit for coming back from last week when we heard 2 Corinthians. That was really encouraging. And it kind of makes you wish that we were still in 2 Corinthians. But we're going back to Ecclesiastes. When you think about Ecclesiastes, you don't think, oh, this will be fun. <laughs> right? You, you, you see Ecclesiastes on the on the sermon card, and you think, oh, wonderful, Ecclesiastes, this will be great. I get it. It's not a break from the real world. It's the real world right in your face. The author is making us take a long, honest look at the real world. And it's not pretty. But... If we can come to grips with the message of Ecclesiastes, then we can come to grips with the world as it really is, and not just the world as we want to sugarcoat it to be. And if we can do that in a Christian way, then we can help other people come to grips with the world as it is, in a way that helps them to see Jesus as the very logic and word of God 
that makes sense of a senseless world. Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, refuses to put on our rose-colored glasses. We keep wanting to give them to him. Here, why don't you look at the world like this, and maybe that will cheer you up, Kohelet. And he's like, no, I don't want those. I'm not looking at the world like that, because that's not real. This is real. And i got to come to grips with the world like it is, not just like I wish it were. He's not going to listen to trite answers or simplistic, facile solutions. He wants nothing to do with a duct-taped worldview. And he's not going to let us get away with papering over life's absurdities and disillusionments. He's going to say, look, look at this. You see that? Because that's how it is. Even in God's world, that's how it is, even when you believe in our God. Now what? Now this is pure speculation. But I think Kohelet, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, might have been both the best and the worst kind of person to have over for dinner after church. I mean, he's the best because he knows exactly what to do with that dinner. Enjoy it for what it is, not for what it's not and can never be. It's just a meal, but enjoy it for what it is. He says that kind of thing throughout his book. But he's the worst kind of person to have over for dinner because if you're trying to make that dinner mean more than God meant it to mean, he's going to call you out on it in front of everybody right there at the table. And the conversation is going to become far more than you bargained for. Kohelet is going to see the world for what it is in all its fallenness, its brokenness, even its senselessness. He will reckon with his disillusionment if only to be under no illusions at all about what this world is and what he can expect from it and what he should not expect from it. And he's going to have us do the same with him if we dare. Do we dare to be as honest about this world and our experience in it as he is? Or would you rather just shut the book or turn to a different page? So he's trying to make sense of the world, not without God, not as a non-Christian, not as a non-Jew, not as an atheist. He's trying to make sense of the world with God. He's arguing with himself, remember, As son of David, king of Israel, he is a true believer in God's truth, God's law, God's wisdom, God's grace. He believes the Bible. That's why he's having a hard time with what he's seeing out in the world. He's the Jew of all Jews, monotheist to the core, exemplary member of the Old Covenant, representative, the king. But as Kohelet, which we'll remember means gatherer, gatherer of observations about life in this world from what he sees, and convener, gatherer of the assembly of God's people 
to show them and tell them what he has observed. As Kohelet, he's wondering out loud how this world can be as dissatisfying as it appears and feels. When he knows, as king of Israel, that his own good God rules over it in righteousness and love. How are these two things going together? How do they fit? I know that God is real. I know the Bible is true. I believe it with all my heart. And yet when I look around, (laughs) it's hard. How can that be consistent with this? Ecclesiastes is letting you read his journal as he's coming to grips with reality as a Christian. He's trying to reconcile God's special revelation in the Bible with his own long, hard, honest look at reality. And he's getting tangled up in the weeds here in the middle. He's trying to reckon with the complexity of a sin-bitten world that is at the same time governed by the good, righteous, sovereign, law-giving, salvation-working God. He mentions God as Elohim 40 times in just 12 chapters. He's not playing the secularist. The book of Ecclesiastes is the record of Kohelet's reckoning with reality. And if you read it along with him, if you learn his lessons from him, you will be able to reckon with reality too, as a Christian. Now, there is encouragement here, I promise. (laughs) But it's not the superficial kind of sophomoric encouragement of an undergraduate student who just took his first counseling or psych class and then came home for the summer and thinks he's going to solve all your problems. Oh, here, I know what's wrong with you. No, 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 no. He speaks his encouragement by recognizing the accuracy of your disillusionment and despair with this world. Yeah, you're right. It is like that. That is hard. There's not a good answer to it. You're right. You're right. It's that bad, and it's that sad. You're right. You know, sometimes when you share a difficulty with your friend or your spouse, I think probably wives know this better than husbands, and they try to encourage you before they really get what you're saying and why you're sad and frustrated, you feel dismissed. You feel talked down to. You feel ignored. Kohelet doesn't do that to you. He's showing you that he's been all the way to the bottom of human disillusionment and despair about this life. Kohelet, the observer of reality, the gatherer of observations, and the one who's sharing them with you, he's been lower than you are. He's thought himself all the way down to the bottom of the hole. And that is precisely how he can lift you up. By getting underneath you. And in that way, Kohelet is like Christ. Christ entered into our brokenness, experienced our absurdity 
suffered our senselessness that resulted from all of our fall into sin, Jesus got underneath us. In fact, he got underneath the guilt and corruption and shame of all of our sin. He got underneath God's condemnation and wrath over all of our sin. And Jesus emerged from the grave victorious for us. He dealt not only with our despair, but with our degeneracy. And Jesus did all of that, all alone, all by himself, without any of our help. without any counsel or support or human friendship in it. He died alone on the cross, forsaken, in order to become the friend of sinners. And it is the loneliness, the forsakenness of Jesus on the cross that meets the lonely human despair that we now have to reckon with in Ecclesiastes 4. As I read it out loud for us, listen for the theme of being alone, not having anybody to comfort, being friendless, the limitations of private companionship and public popularity. And our time together this morning in Ecclesiastes 4 is going to be structured by five disillusionments with this world that must lead us to hope in Christ. Five disillusionments with this world that must lead us to hope in Christ. So follow along in your Bible as I read out loud for us. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never even asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went out from his prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, the striving after wind. 
five disillusionments with this world that must lead us to hope in Christ. First, disillusionment, the tears of the comfortless. The tears of the comfortless in verses 1 through 3. Oppression is authority abused. It is power perverted for the good of the one in power. And it happens all the time. It took me less than one minute online to discover a a story that CNN ran last Thursday entitled, Patrick Brown is free after 29 years for a crime prosecutors now say he did not commit. Twenty-nine years? The article detailed that he spent almost three decades in prison for a rape that even the victim says he didn't commit. And yet now that he's out, what do you think are his chances of getting a good paying job? Patrick Brown is one of thousands. And in many of those cases, not all, but many, innocent men are languishing in prison because police hide exculpatory evidence just to chalk up another collar and close another case. That's oppression. And it's real. And it happens all the time. We could multiply instances of oppression in this world just by watching the news, just by looking around. Women and children are physically and sexually abused by men. Older men and women are neglected and abused in nursing homes by the very people entrusted to their care or entrusted with their care. Students are abused by teachers. Whole populations are starved, murdered, bombed by rapacious dictators. We read and see these things every single day. Helpless people wickedly mistreated by other people who pervert their power over those helpless people. That in itself would be bad enough. That in itself is like, what in the world? What troubles Kohelet, though, what makes it worse for him, is not just the oppression. It's the comfortlessness of the oppressed. Twice, he says, they had no one to comfort them. There was no one comforting them. It's not just that they didn't have somebody to write their... They didn't have anybody to comfort them in their sorrow. There was not even anybody crying with them. They're all alone. Loneliness aggravates oppression. And when Kohelet sees not only the tears of the oppressed, but that there's no one to comfort them, he's close to hitting rock bottom. I think he does hit rock bottom. He envies those who have already died. 
man, if this world is like that, I think dead people in their graves are better off than me looking around at that. At least they're not looking around at that. And come to think of it, maybe it would have been better never to have been born in the first place than to read all these headlines in a world like ours. Man, how can this be? How can this world be this bad when it's governed by such a good God? I believe in the good God. I believe he's sovereign. I believe he's ruling. But man, when I'm looking at this, this is really hard to come to grips with. You think you're the first person that's looked at the world like that? Don't flatter yourself. Read Ecclesiastes. You are not the first person to deal with the problem of evil. Why even come into a world marked by oppression without remorse and crying without comfort? Who can stand to live in this kind of world? I mean, are these not the very kind of questions that drive people away from faith in the Bible altogether? These are the realities that make people too cynical, too jaded to believe anything. Or anything like the Bible, or the God of the Bible, or His sovereignty over all things. How can a good God preside over such a reality? Surely such a good God would do something to comfort the comfortless in their cries. Surely He would provide a friend for the friendless, a comforter, an advocate. There is a senselessness to this world. There is an absurdity to it. The Bible admits it right here. The Bible feels you. Reality. Reality as we can see it and observe it from our perspective, from our vantage point. It's unacceptable. Does God not understand then? Does God not care? Is he not able? Friend, the rest of the Bible is the story of God seeing, knowing, and understanding, and acknowledging, and caring, and coming to the rescue in Christ. But you will never see reality as needing Christ until you look at it straight in the face for what it is. And you will not see your own need for Christ until you look at yourself straight in the mirror. And you will not get over this angst in your heart if you keep blaming God for the way the world is. This is not just how bad reality is. This is how bad humanity really is. This isn't how bad God is. This is how bad we are, friend. 
This is us right here. This is how we treat each other. This is what we do to each other. We leave each other crying lonely tears because we pervert power and abuse authority with nobody left to comfort the people we abuse and ignore. Now think about it, skeptic. If reality were not this bad, then God sending His own Son to die on the cross under the Father's righteous and judicial wrath in our place for our sins, that would have been literally overkill. But God did it, which means it must not have been overkill. It must have been exactly proportional justice. Because reality, humanity, is really as bad as Kohelet sees it to be. Don't get it wrong. This is not how bad God is. This is how bad you and I are. This is how badly we disobeyed God. This is the fruit of rejecting God's authority over us. You deal with this in your, in your children all the time or in your employees. Your children disobey, your employees mess up. You bring the hammer, you bring the discipline. And what do your kids say? What do your employees say? I know what mine says. I don't like this day. I hate this house. This is the worst house ever. You guys don't love me. You're the worst boss. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, again, like we laugh at that. It's funny. I get it. But you know that's how God hears it when you blame him for how bad this world is. And then you think, well, why don't you do something? Hey, 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 he did do something. He sent Christ, did he not? And what are you doing with Christ? You're going to ignore that? Yeah, but, well, it's not all perfect yet. Well, just wait a little while. Wait a while. He's going to make it all right. This world needs to be saved. Reality must be redeemed, and humanity is this bad, not because there are just a few bad apples ruining the bushel. People oppress each other because we are all oppressed by our own inward slavery to sin, by worldliness, by our corrupt, sinful nature, and by the devil himself as the prince of this world. And you know when it started? When we listened to the devil say, did God really say? Ah, the devil was offering us what? What was the devil offering us? He was offering to get us out of a perceived, a wrongly perceived oppression by God. But was God oppressing us? No, of course not. Every tree in the garden is yours. Just leave this one to me, will you? And we couldn't do that. He warned us death would come. Death did come. And now what do we say? I don't like this day. Oh, you have no idea. You think that's dealing with the problem of evil? No, 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 no. God, God is dealing with the problem of evil at great cost to himself. 
the cost of his own son. Stop accusing God of being guilty of causing the problem of evil. You talk about a facile solution. You talk about too easy. Hey, man, come on. Be honest with yourself. Is it really God's fault? God made man upright. Man, man sought out many devices. That's in Ecclesiastes as well. Ecclesiastes then does not contradict the Christian worldview. It confirms the Christian worldview. This is why, this is why God had to send Jesus, his only son. It was not overkill. It's because it was this bad. Ecclesiastes is the reason Jesus opens his whole preaching ministry by quoting Isaiah 61 and Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus did. That's what he came to do. To set you free from your sin and your slavery to sin and your oppression under the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when he sat down with everyone staring at him in that synagogue, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The truth about reality in Ecclesiastes is why Jesus invites us in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? With Ecclesiastes. With looking at your heart, with looking at the world and not being able to come up with anything that makes sense to you about why it's like this. Yeah, you come to me with that, Jesus says. You come to me with your senselessness. You come to me with all the absurdity that you see in this world. You come to me with your inability to recognize and reconcile your vertical perception based on God's word and your horizontal perception based on what you see happening and all the oppressions and evil stuff that happens in the world. You bring me that, Jesus says. I will answer that for you. I will walk through that with you. I will teach you about that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says. Let me harness you. You can't figure this out being a wild stallion. You can't figure this out being a donkey of a man or woman. Always thinking, I don't want to submit. Well, you better put that yoke on or you'll never figure it out. Put his yoke on you. He's gentle. He's humble in heart. He approaches you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop bucking. Stop bucking. Come here. Here, let me put this on you. Okay. All right. Now, let me guide you. Let me lead you. It's better, isn't it? You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't get confused about all this stuff. He doesn't have that kind of burden that you have. He knows. He knows exactly why. 
because he doesn't deny it like you do. By the time you're done reckoning with reality, you're ready. You're ready to take that yoke upon you. Reckon with it. You come to an end of yourself. You come to despair like the author of Ecclesiastes came to despair. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. All, all I really know is I guess I just should go and enjoy lunch because <laughs> I can't solve it all. But by the time you're done, you are clinging to Christ as your only hope for salvation from sin and for significance in a world that has turned absurd by our own sin. Our loneliness under oppression, though, is not just under the oppression of other people's sin against us. It's our loneliness under the oppression of our own sin and stupidity and voluntary slavery to our own corrupt appetites and inclinations. That's why Jesus talks about his death and resurrection as if it were an exodus during the transfiguration in Luke 9.31. He's transformed into glory for a moment on the mountain, talking with Moses and Elijah about what? about the departure, about the ex-hodos, the exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And why does he talk about his death as an exodus? Because it's the way that he frees you from the oppression of your sin and from the oppression of you blaming God just like Satan taught you to. Did God really say? And you blaming God for the problem of evil is you still telling God, did God really say? He came to free you from that. If you want to be free. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is our new exodus ticket out from under the oppression of our sin. And out from the oppression of the condemnation of the law as a taskmaster like Pharaoh who tells us, make more bricks, but I'm not giving you anything to make them with. No straw, just brick. Just make me bricks. That's how the law talks to you. Figure it out, man. Figure it out. And Jesus says to you, no, 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 come to me. You who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It is by faith in Jesus, trusting in his sinless life, his death as a substitute penalty from God that we deserve for our sins, his resurrection as his vindication, and his wisdom as our guide. That we escape our own silent solitary oppression under our own sins and under the confusion that they create. We have to trust in Jesus to return and to judge all oppression by himself, to set free every captive, to right every wrong, to send every unrepentant sinner to hell for all eternity and to wipe away every tear from every eye that beholds him in faith so that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain Anymore, There will be no more comfortless tears because there will be no more tears for those who trust Jesus. You believe that? That's your hope? Because if it is, you can endure anything here without being able to explain it yet. But until then, we wait. Jesus has begun this salvation but he has not yet consummated it. And you've got to be okay with that too. So 
So the church waits together, still enduring oppression from sin and the devil, still enduring the animosity of the world, still depending on God himself to make all things right and new in his own time. Just like we read in Revelation 12, 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Jesus comforts the oppressed. But if you want his comfort, you've got to quit criticizing him as if all the oppression is his fault. It's not his fault. Second, alienation of the envious. The alienation of the envious. All the other points will be shorter than the first one. Alienation of the envious in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, Kohelet returns to one of his favorite, most vexing themes, work. Why do people work so relentlessly? Why the rat race? Well, because we're all trying to keep up with the Joneses, evidently. Then I saw that toil, all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is what we see when we look around, isn't it? Isn't this how we parent our own children? Come to think of it. Send them to school. So they can go to college, so they can get a job, so they can have a nicer house and a nicer car than we had, so that they can provide better for their kids than we did for them, so that they can send their kids to school, so that their kids can go to college, so their kids can get better jobs and have nicer houses and cars, world without end. You tell me, parent, that that thought has not at least fleetingly motivated you in your counsel to your children. Envy. Envy. We work because we covet the things God has given to others. And then we get jealous of them, thinking that we deserve those things more than they deserve those things. Then we envy them for not having such things as they do. That is, we resent them for having what we think we deserve more, and that aggravates our loneliness in the world. It alienates us from them. So we work. We compete. We try to prove by our work that we are more deserving, that we have proven our worth, that we have earned what others have been given. I worked for this. And this envy alienates us from each other just as effectively as oppression. If I cannot oppress you politically, then I will beat you competitively and financially with my achievements. I will beat you at your own game. You got a 42-inch? I got a 55-inch. You got a 55-inch? I got a 65-inch. You got a 65-inch? I got a 75-inch. You got a Lexus? I got a Tesla. And this is what we call being a human race. It's absurdity. This is a senseless way of being human and social. This does not make sense. And yet this is how the world works. Both in the sense of this is the way the world is and this is the way humanity carries out its sense of vocation. This is how it works and this is how we do work. Envy. 
and yet work is inescapable. That's the point of the pithy little Proverbs in verses 5 and 6. Envy drives work, but what are you going to do? Not work? Uh, not an option. Not working is not an option in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Work is good. Work is necessary. So look at what he's doing here. He's given you his point. Every, every, all, all work, all toil, all skill in work is from envy. And then he just places a couple of proverbs that will interpret that for you. I can't not work. To not work is to cannibalize yourself. You're going to eat yourself alive by not working. The only resolution comes in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toiling and striving after the wind. Ah, that's how you pursue work. You don't quit work, and you don't quiet quit. You work quietly. Content to live quietly. Maybe one handful is enough for you instead of killing yourself to fill both hands. Maybe both of your hands are so full of this world that you couldn't offer anyone else a hand even if you tried. Oh, sorry, I got all this stuff. Brother, head of household, don't let that be you. It's easy to envy what someone else has in their two hands until you realize what they had to do to go get it. After all, didn't Jesus promise that if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you? Maybe it's time you took him up on it. I wonder what standard is calibrating your aspirations. Paul counsels us in 1 Thessalonians 4 to aspire to live. Aspire. Aspire. That's a high word, isn't it? Aspire. So we... We expect something really grand after the word aspire. Aspire to live, how? Quietly. Quietly. And to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So it's one thing to be dependent on no one. That's good. It's another thing to be financially independent while also retaining the quietness of your spirit in the midst of your responsibilities. Friend, are you content to live quietly? Or do you feel like you always got to make a big splash? He tells us again, 2 Thessalonians 3, that instead of being busybodies, we ought to do our work quietly to earn our own living. Tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, we should pray for leaders, not so that we can rise to power, not so that we could put our guy in office, not so that we could change the government, but simply so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly in every way. Pretty limited objective. We all have different callings in life. Not all ambition is bad, leadership is good, not running around like a chicken with your head cut off is also good. Quiet is good. Not always bragging about how busy you are is good. Limiting your upward mobility below the level where you have to sacrifice the quiet of your spirit, that's good. 
And there's a different level of that for every one of you in this room. You can't compare yourselves to each other. What some are able to do, how some are able to rise without sacrificing the quiet of their spirit, is beyond other people. But being a Mary at Jesus' feet, that's good. Being a Martha is what gets you Jesus' rebuke. Being a Martha gets you noticed. Oh, she's always doing everything, isn't she? Wow. She's so active. What a servant. Oh, she's got so much energy. Wow. How does she do it all? Makes you feel important. But being a Mary, being a Mary is what gets you closer to Jesus. The question is, which one do you want? How are you living? Jesus said in Matthew 6 that when we give, we shouldn't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. In other words, both your hands shouldn't be doing the same thing financially. This is what he means right here, chapter 4. Instead of trying to keep both hands full, instead of using both hands to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, and make and make and make money, you should give to others in a way that doesn't let your earning hand know what your giving hand is doing. Your giving hand should be secret from your earning hand and your saving hand and your keeping hand. And your giving hand should be like, shh, don't tell him. Don't tell Mr. Earner over there. Don't tell Saver. We're going to give. We're going to give. We're going to give. Because he won't like it. But we don't care that he doesn't like it because we love to give. Hmm? That's how you give. That's the only way you can be generous. Third, the emptiness of the insatiable. The emptiness of the insatiable person. Kohelet traces loneliness from the political in verses 1 to 3 to the economic in verses 4 to 6 to the domestic now in verses 7 and 8. One person has no other, either son or brother. There's no end to all his toil. This is the ultimate loner. Too busy for family and friends, too ambitious for relationships, too selfish to get bogged down in obligations. He's exhausting himself. No end to all his toil. He's insatiable. His eyes never are satisfied with money and what it can buy. Words of one famous rich person. How much money is enough money? Just a little bit more. Yet he's oblivious to his own condition. He never even stops to ask who it's all for. It's the ultimate selfish life. And it makes life absurd. Now, this is not a biblical rebuke of all single people. Don't take it like that. Don't use it like that. If you're single, this is not necessarily aimed directly at you. This isn't a pot shot at people who have not gotten married. This is aimed at the person who's a loner because of selfish ambition for status and greed and for money. In fact, this may not even be about marital status at all. He doesn't specify the aloneness as not having a wife. He specifies it as not having a brother or a son. So just because you're married doesn't mean you're the one that's out of the woods either. You might be in a lonely marriage because you choose career over spouse and kids. How often does your wife see you anyway? You don't have to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk for this to apply to you. If you love the world more than your wife, this is you. 
And if you're always excusing it for, well, this is for my wife. Uh, hmm. Really? What if we asked her what she wants more? You or your money? You or your status? You or your promotion? If you love publicity more than people, Kohelet's talking about you. This is the person who sacrifices relationships on the altar of success. This is about loving the world so much that you would rather not have a neighbor to love. I wish people would just go away and leave me alone so I could earn more money and buy stuff with it. I mean, any of us can feel like that at any time. When Jesus tells the crowd that the second greatest command is to love your neighbor, the guy asks, well, who's my neighbor? Kind of wonder what his posture was when he asked that question of Jesus. I kind of think it was like this. Who's my neighbor? Who counts? Who, Who do I have to do this for anyway? Hot shot. As if he's trying to narrow down the requirement of who he's got to love. And remember how Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan all the way through. The whole parable is designed to ask, well, who was a neighbor to the man in need? Who was a neighbor? Who acted like the neighbor? You're not even asking the right question. The question is not who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor even to those around me who are unlike me and who may very well dislike me for who I am? You remember, who was the guy who got caught? Who was the... Who was the robbed guy? The Jew. And who was the guy that helped him? A Samaritan who Jews hated. The oppressed is helping the oppressor in that parable. Paul told the Philippians, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that, after all, what Jesus himself did to a supreme extent? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, became obedient to death on a cross. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did he ho- what did he hope to accomplish in your life by laying down his life for yours? Well, first of all, he did it to endure God's wrath over our sins in our place as our substitute. But Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all that, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, you tell me, does that describe how you live? Does that describe how and why you work at your job the way you do? Or how you relate to your neighbors as you do? Or how you serve the church as you do? If you do? Again, in Romans 14, 7, for none of us lives to himself. None of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. You, Christian, have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. And that means Jesus is worth living for in a way that nothing else is. And now that that's true, we view ourselves differently. It's the transformation Paul describes in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You work not only so that you don't steal, but so that you can love your neighbor by having something to share with him instead of acting like he doesn't exist. Friend, there's an absurd emptiness to living for your own profit and pleasure, whether you're married or not. The absurdity is that the more you seek to save your life in this world, the more you will lose it. But if you lose your life in this world for Jesus and the, for, for the gospel's sake, then ironically, that's where you find yourself thriving and flourishing. By giving yourself away for the sake of the gospel in other people's lives. You withhold yourself from God and from this church and from the people who need you here and who love you and want to see you more. And you think that's the way you're going to thrive. You tell me, do you thrive when you withhold yourself from us? from each other. Do you thrive? I don't think you do. I don't thrive when I withhold myself from you. I don't thrive when I withhold myself from God's purposes and from the Holy Spirit's compulsions and inclinations in my heart. I don't thrive like that. You think you're going to thrive alone? That's not how Jesus says the Christian life works. Attempting to live for yourself, to yourself, that's what steers you further into the absurdities of life. Meaning is not found in being true to yourself. It's found in being true to God and to others in relationship before God because God did not make you for yourself. God made you for himself and for the good of other selves around you who need you. And in whom you will find your flourishing as you give yourself to their flourishing. That is the Christian life. You know what? You want to know why I harp on membership? That's why. Because you don't believe it. Because none of us, myself included, we don't naturally believe this stuff. We naturally think, just like the world thinks, I can make it on my own. I'm a self-made man. I don't need them. Yes, you do. And we need you. The insatiable person uses people to get things. The godly person uses things to serve people. Fourth, the limited, the limited advantages of private company. Here again, the modern temptation, verses 9 to 12, is to romanticize this paragraph, make it an ideal vision of marriage. That's not what this is. Verses 9 to 12 qualify verses 7 and 8, kind of like verses 5 and 6 qualified verse 4. Verse 4 said... Man works because he envies. Verse 5 qualified that. Work is better than not work. You can't not work. Verse 6 clarified. Work is good as long as you're content. One handful with quiet is better than two handfuls with trouble and frustration. So here in verses 9 to 12, working your tail off all your lonesome self 
Sacrificing relationships on the altar of work and prosperity, that's bad. Now, here's what's better than that. It's not ideal. It doesn't fix everything, but it's better in a relative sense. So notice, what's better is not some utopia, is it? There's a pretty limited vision of companionship. Just three relative goods. I mean, he's not saying, oh, I found the other side of myself in this other person, and wow, wow, my whole reality got better all of a sudden. Nope. If one falls, the other can pick him up. That's good. But notice, the companionship doesn't prevent the fall, it just remedies the fall. <laughs> you still fall. Again in verse 11, two can keep warm better than one, yet you're still both out in the cold, needing each other to be warm. Verse 12, two or three can resist a single attacker, but all three of you are still living in a world where you get attacked. doesn't change the world. just changes your response to it. So yes, two are better than one. No question. Two are better than one. Community is better than isolation. Friendship is better than loneliness. But the two still live in the same hazardous, cold, hostile world. Companionship in this life is remedial, not redemptive. It's a relative good, not an absolute good. You should have friends. You better have friends. You need them. Friendship restores, warms, defends. But this world still is what it is. And you're still having to endure this world together. And this is why Jesus sent out his first 70 disciples two by two. That's why we gather together in local churches. It's not because we think we've created some ideal utopia together. Most of you have been with us long enough to know by now, this ain't utopia. <laughs> You're having conflicts with each other. You have to figure that out, right? She said this. He said that. Why did he do that? He didn't talk to me. Yeah, I get it. It's not utopia, is it? It's just the church. You're not going to have to stick around long to find out we're not a perfect church. And we're not turning Elgin into Elysium. We're not turning it into some Greek utopia. But we do still need each other, precisely because we ourselves are not out of the woods yet either. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, counsels us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, church, believers, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Make sure you don't fall. Make sure you stick together so that if one of you falls, another one of you can pick him up. Are you looking around? Have you noticed anybody falling? What are you going to do about that? Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Not just Sunday, every day. As long as it is called today in this age, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see how the local church doesn't idealize reality or take all the dangers out of the Christian life. The church doesn't redeem anything of itself. But it does restore us when we fall. It does warm us with Christian affection in a world that's cold to Christ. And while it can't keep the wolves from attacking, it can prevent, protect and defend us when they do attack. And you better be in here when they do. Two are better than one. There's safety in numbers. It was ever thus. Ecclesiastes 4. 
That's why Hebrews 10 exhorts us to show up to maintain these relationships. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How am I going to keep being a Christian and believing like a Christian and acting like a Christian and serving like a Christian? Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't Zoom that stuff. You've got to be here. That's why showing up here is so important. It's much harder for a wolf to take down a sheep in the middle of the flock. Have you ever seen that? A wolf going right to the middle of the flock with a couple shepherds surrounding the flock. That don't happen. Who's the wolf go for? Wolves always target the sheep on the edges. Just watch the Discovery Channel. Watch National Geographic. Which one does the wolf choose? That one over there, not the one in here. But very often, who is the one over there? It's the sheep that's arrogant enough to think, I don't need to be in there. They're a bunch of fuddy-duddies. I don't see any wolves. Of course you don't see any wolves. <laughs> of course you don't. Again, this church will fail you sooner or later. That doesn't mean you should bail on this church or any other. It just means that when any church fails you, you look to Jesus. He's the friend. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Fifth and finally, the limited duration of public popularity. The limited duration of public popularity, verses 13 to 16. These last few verses provide a kind of public or political counterpart to the personal companionship of verses 9 to 12. Prison in those days wasn't for criminals. It was for debtors. So this is not, <laughs> this is not, a, <laughs> this is not a text that you can quote to see, hey, look, the Bible lets people who have been in prison rule over other people. That's not, that's not how this text should be used, okay? Uh, this was a debtor's prison. So this young guy rises to rule, not from a former life of crime, but from a former life of poverty and unpaid debt. From that experience, that young man learned to take counsel and benefit from it. That, in turn, made him a better king at a younger age than an old king who isolated himself by not taking advice from people anymore. So just as there's a worthwhile but limited advantage to personal friendship, over isolation, so there is a limited advantage to having a humble person rule who takes advice rather than having a stubborn old fool who can't take correction. But even that good is only relative. It's not absolute. It's not lasting. After all, crowds are fickle wherever you find them, and death comes to wise and foolish rulers alike. In other words, you can end up lonely even when you have a huge throng of people following you. As there was no end to the selfish worker's toil in verse 8, so there was no end to the people this wise ruler led and influenced. And yet in each case, the abundance of work and the abundance of those led did not change the way the world is. Either the crowd turned on this young ruler or he died and was forgotten forever. 
which raises the question, was it better to have a poor wise youth ruling than an old fool who couldn't take a lick of advice? Yeah, it was. Of course it was better, but only to a relative degree and only for a time. In the end, he's still just ruling fallen, fickle people, no matter how wise he was, and whether these people are the same ones he led or a new generation who came after him, they either forgot him when he's gone or they pick apart his legacy not long after he leaves office. Even a wise leader will end up with no one to lead. <laughs> Just like those who are opposed, oppressed with nobody to comfort them. Jesus himself suffered the fate of a fickle crowd. He was the ultimate wise king. Crowds turned on him while he was still with them. Sometimes the crowd, they crowded his way. His sweet praises sing, resounding all the days. Hosanna to their king, then crucify is all their breath. And for their, his death, they thirst and cry. Jesus was only popular for so long until they no longer rejoiced in him either. And yet Jesus' rejection by man meant our acceptance with God. Sooner or later, we all come to a reckoning with one or more of these disillusionments in life. The tears of the comfortless must drive us to the Christ who will wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who trust him. The alienation of the envious must drive us to the Christ who gave himself to us so freely. The emptiness of the insatiable has to drive us to the Christ who proved himself such a good neighbor to us by suffering in our stead and meeting all of our needs. The limited help of the church has to drive us to the limitless Christ. And the disappointment of temporary rulers has to drive us to the Christ whose kingdom will have no end. None of this, of course, immediately changes the way the world is or looks or works. But it does change the way we relate to the world. It gives us hope in Christ, who sunk lower than all of us, who got underneath us by becoming obedient to death on a cross so that he might raise us up with him in his new resurrection life. He did this for us all by himself, all alone, without our help, without our comfort, while we were still his enemies, which proves that Jesus is the great friend of sinners. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. He died for us without us. But he rose from the dead so that he might become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I hope you're one of them. You can be today. Turn from sin and self to trust in the friend of sinners. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Father, we confess we have often bought the lie that we can live apart from each other or even apart from you. We have often let our disillusionment with the way this world is drive us to criticize you rather than to take your yoke on us and learn from you. Forgive us. May we find that you, Lord Christ, are the great friend of sinners. And that Holy Spirit, you indwell us when we trust in Christ. 
and remain with us forever. So, Father, may we treat you as our Holy Father and great creator, our sustainer. May we bring to Christ all of our disillusionments. May we find in him the resolution to all our fears and sorrows and frustrations. For his sake we pray. Amen.